Let me pray for us as we open up the word together. Father, thank you so much for this day, for this morning, for what we've sung, for what we've experienced, for what we've heard. We thank you for the goodness of your gospel and the fact that you are changing lives and continuing to transform us into the image of your son. Father, this morning, give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. We are here for you. We want to leave this place having been shaped by your truth, motivated by your gospel, Father, so that we might uh, live in such a way that many would come to know Christ for who he is as the Messiah. So speak to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible, please make your way to Psalm chapter 24. That's where we're going to spend our time this morning. We are in between series right now. In a few weeks, we'll be starting a new series in 1 Corinthians. We're going to look at the first chapter of that particular epistle written by the Apostle Paul. The series is called Divided, Seeking Unity in a Fractured World. Extremely relevant for our day and age right now. And division creates instability. And in many ways, the message the Lord gave me for us this morning goes right along with that theme. As I've been contemplating this really over the last three years, has our world ever felt so fractured, so unstable, so unpredictable in your lifetime? Now, if you lived through a world war, you might have some experience. If you lived through the civil rights movement and the Vietnam War, you might have some experience. But for most of us, this is the only season we've been through with such widespread unrest, such widespread instability. This past week, as I was just uh, working through the news, I was reading about these forest fires that are happening currently in Alaska. It happens every summer. We usually hear about them in California. This year, it's in Alaska. 48 large fires have burned around 2 million acres. It's blown away their state records. It's been a record-setting year, not just for that state, but for the country, as we've had over 35,000 fires, and they have burned down collectively over 4.6 million acres. Now, for me, that doesn't necessarily mean much. I don't understand the context. And so to help us with that, the, 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 the numbers last year were about the same number of fires, but instead of 4.6 million acres burned, it was 1.7, same month, same time. So it just gives you an idea of how much more has happened. And so when I was reading through these articles, seeing what was happening, it just kind of hit my mind that all these fires, it's like a metaphor. It's like a metaphor for our nation right now. There's so many things that seem like they're on fire. So many things burning that are kind of beyond our control, that we can't seem to get under control. We can't get the political climate under control. We can't get the educational system under control. We can't get the economy under control. We can't get inflation under control. We can't get racial reconciliation under control. We can't get Europe or any other part of the world under control. Some people have officially said that we've gotten a pandemic under the control, but under control, but that just depends on who you talk to. And there's all kinds of, of course, opinions around that. And the old, as in three years ago, 2019 narrative of our Western society was that we control our own lives. That was one of the staples of uh, a democracy. That's one of the staples of our way of life, that we control our own lives. It's shocking how quickly, of course, that narrative can change. And how many times have we all heard over the last two or three years, if you would have told me that this is what reality would be like today and what we've been through, we would have gone through back in those days before uh, March of 2020, I would have never believed you, would have never believed you. 
There are so many things beyond our control. So a question I want to begin with is, are you willing to admit that this morning? That there are things that you cannot control. And in fact, even if it has a hard time rolling off your lips, just for the practice of it communally, turn to your neighbor this morning and say, I can't control everything. Turn to them and say, I can't control everything. I can't control it. And now look to him and say, and neither can you. And neither can you. What do we need to do when things seem out of our control? Do we need to fight to just say, I'm going to wrestle the situation to the ground until I get a handle on it again? That self-confidence and self-assurance and self-image and inner strength is all that I really need. That's what I need to get this situation back under my control. Do we need to fear to let anxiety turn in our stomachs and torture our heads? That's what it feels like. Or do we need to have an active faith that says God's presence is all I need? God's presence is actually all that I need. If God is for me, who can stand against me? He's got this. That means that I can trust him. And that's what I want to speak over all of you this morning. God's presence is truly all you need. Regardless of what you walked in with this morning, regardless of the situations occurring in your life, the thing you need more than anyone else, anything else, the thing that I need more than anything else is the presence of God in my life. So we want to talk about that this morning, that right now that's what we need, that's what our world needs. In A.W. Tozer's classic little book, The Pursuit of God, he wrote, the presence of God is the central fact of Christianity. At the heart of the Christian message is God himself waiting for his redeemed children to push into conscious awareness of his presence. That we would understand, not just at a cognitive level, that God is with us, but we would understand experientially God is with us. So many of us might be aware intellectually of his presence through the person of the Holy Spirit, but so many might struggle with actually experiencing the difference that the Holy Spirit really makes. Uh, You you might say, yeah, I I know, I've been taught, I've I've heard the sermons, I've studied the scriptures, I understand that God says that he is with us, that Jesus promised to send a helper, that the Holy Spirit would come, that God is with me, but I just don't really experience that reality. What's that experience even look like? What does it mean? What does it feel like? We'll come back to that in a few minutes. But this is why I was uh, drawn to Psalm 24. It's a Hebrew poem that celebrates the reality of God's presence with his people. That's what the psalm is about. It points us to three practices that help us experience the presence of God even when life seems out of control. Now, most scholars agree that the backstory to this psalm, we're going to spend quite a bit of time setting it up, it's found in 2 Samuel chapter 6. And so I want to go there first. Uh, In 2 Samuel chapter 6, it was a chaotic time in the Old Testament in Israel's history. This chapter is about the Ark of the Covenant being brought back to the city of Jerusalem. The Israelites had lost the Ark of the Covenant to the people called the Philistines in a war, in a battle. And the Ark of God was not just a box 
that, you know, made for a really good sci-fi movie in Indiana Jones with some freaky scenes that your parents didn't let you watch when you were a kid. It's not that. It, It was the focal point of God's presence with his people in the Old Testament. It symbolized the very presence of God, the power of God with his people. One of my favorite authors right now, his name is John Mark Comer. He taught on this text and influenced some of my sermon today, certainly. And he reminds us that this chapter in Psalm 24, and actually also in 2 Samuel chapter 6, is about God's presence and goodness coming back to the nation of Israel. So in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 1, just to give us that backstory, let me read some of these scriptures. It says, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, would be a great name if it just replaced one letter with another letter. The sons of Abinadab were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. Did you notice Samuel, in the midst of all these weird names, he does something twice that we should pay attention to in the text. He calls it a new cart. And whenever you're in the Old Testament and you find adjectives, you need to pay attention because the Old Testament doesn't use a lot of adjectives. And so when they're there, they're there specifically for a purpose. And when they're repeated, it's repeated for emphasis. And so he says a new cart twice. Why is this a big deal? It doesn't sound like a bad idea to put the ark on this new cart. The ark is a very holy and special artifact representing this very presence of God amongst his people. So they're thinking, let's bring it back to Jerusalem on something new, something shiny, something that fits the occasion. The problem is that God had given very specific instructions on how to carry the ark itself. Only Levites, who were a tribe of priests amongst God's people, were supposed to carry the ark. And they carried it on their shoulders with poles, and the poles didn't even touch the ark. The poles went through rings holding the ark itself. Verse 5, And David and all the house of Israel were making merry before the Lord, with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down from there because of his heir, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had burst forth against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? Is this just another example of the angry God of the Bible that loses his temper at a moment's notice. And it says God struck Uzzah down there because of his error. This means Uzzah was aware of the mistake. Uzzah chose disobedience. And the principle is he chose to willingly abandon what was right for what was convenient. He compromised. He and everybody else in the story lacked a fear of God. 
Now, there is such a thing as a healthy fear of God. A healthy fear can protect us. But they were no longer in all of God. They were no longer in all of his holiness. Their attitude was, it's a lot like so many uh, uh, believers' attitudes today. Let's just have a good time, do the faith thing a little bit, in the simplest and most convenient form possible, and God will be happy with our half-hearted effort. We don't really have to pay too much attention to how our worship ought to be. We'll just give him our leftovers, give him what we have, and he'll be happy with whatever it is that we bring him. He'll be satisfied. No, there's a fear of God that's necessary in proper worship. In verse 10, it says, So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. So he is now recognizing that he should have gone about this whole situation very differently. He should have searched the scriptures. He should have seen what it is that God desired of him. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord, the presence of God, remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. And guess what happened? The Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his household. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all of his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all of the house of Israel, representing the nation, brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with sound of the horn. God's presence and goodness rested in the home of Obed-Edom, and his presence brought blessings. David figures this out and decides to do it right. So the Levites then began carrying the Ark of the Covenant on their shoulders, and here's what they would do. As they took it from Obed-Edom's house, they'd go one, two, three, four, five, six, stop. Make an altar, sacrifice an animal, worship God, praise God. They'd make a fire to do the whole thing. Then they'd go one, two, three, four, five, six, stop, make an altar, make a fire, sacrifice an animal, worship God. They did that every six steps for 10 miles. 10 miles. Stop, make an altar, make a fire. Have a sacrifice, worship. Six more steps, again and again and again. Why? They weren't just carrying a piece of wood covered in gold with some artifacts inside. They were bringing God's holy presence, his immeasurable goodness back to God's people. They understood the holiness of that moment. They understood that God's presence is ultimately all that they needed. It's what Obed-Edom needed. It's what the nation of Israel needed. It's what we need. We'll see the difference here between the Old Testament covenant, the promises of God given there, and the New Testament covenant here in a few moments. But that's what they understood. They knew they needed the presence of God, and God demanded a holy response of worship. When they finally made it to the city, all of that background, Psalm 24 is the psalm that they sung as they brought the ark into the city. It was God's presence coming back. And this is what it says, verse 1 of Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. 
For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. I like how the NIV translates verse 1. It says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Trust that God has it all under control. That's the first thing we must do. We must trust that God has it all under control. These two verses talk about God's ownership and a theological term called God's omnipresence. He created the earth. It's His. That's ownership. He created everything in the earth. It's His. It's ownership. Even the parts that we think are uncontrollable, out of our control. For people in the ancient times, in, in, in the first century and certainly before, Uh, The waters, the seas, the rivers, they represented, they symbolized things that were beyond human control. Even these things, according to the verse here, the psalm here, they sang, they said, it's his ownership. And his presence extends over all the earth. He's omnipresent. There is nowhere where God is not. So what's missing in our relationship with God is not his presence. It's our awareness of his presence. That's so often what we don't realize. Do do we actually think that he's not present? Or are we not aware of his presence within us through his spirit or around us through others? Two years ago, around this time of year, my daughter Leah, she's now 16. At the time she was 14. She started complaining she had uh, heavy, achy legs. This is one of the few crises in my children's lives medically. Uh, She started complaining of heavy, achy legs. She was running cross-country. She had just run six and a half miles for training. And we're like, of course your legs are heavy. Of course your legs are achy. I would have died like three miles ago. So, you know, of course you don't feel great. A week goes by and she literally lost the color in her skin. Uh, She came downstairs uh, for, for soccer practice, getting ready to head out the door. She walks into the kitchen. This is about a week after her complaints. Uh, and she, she collapses. I catch her right before she hits the ground. Uh, within a few hours the next morning, she's in an ambulance on her way over here to Royal Oak Beaumont. And she had lost, once the doctors discovered it all, two-thirds of the blood in her body with a GI tract bleed that she didn't know she had. We didn't know how long the bleed had been there. We didn't know where it came from. We didn't know the condition. We just knew that she lost two-thirds of the blood in her body, and the doctors were saying if she was any older or any less fit, her organs would have failed and she'd be dead. They started running all these tests on her over at Royal Oak Beaumont. The the problem for me was that I wasn't allowed into the hospital. Uh, During COVID at the time, only one parent was allowed in, and so with a minor, uh, my wife was there. Once she was able to be there, we weren't allowed to go back and forth. She was like the name that got signed in, and so I had to sit at home and just uh, get FaceTimed in or talk to the doctors through the speakerphone or whatever it might be. Uh, she ended up with three blood transfusions, about five days worth of tests, and she came home stable five days later. The doctors found a few ulcers, but they never were able to really figure out what went wrong with her. They did tests for the next six months. Um, the the wonderful part of the story, which isn't always everybody's story, she's been fine since. I mean, she's strong as an ox. She's doing great. But during those five days, I, I just remembered this memory as I was preparing for this week, because as I was remembering what it was like when she was in the hospital and I'm standing at home, uh, at the time, a perfectly fit 14-year-old who never had any symptoms of any kind, and all of a sudden she's 
needing blood transfusions and going into expensive machines. I just realized in those days, more than most times in my life, I could do nothing. There was nothing I could do. And maybe you've been there, situations with your kids, with family members, with others. It is completely out of your control. And I was reminded in those moments of that verse, Psalm 24, verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. And it took everything in me just to pray over and over and over and over again during those five days. She's yours, Father. She's more yours than she is mine. And everything in this whole earth is yours. Everything in the universe is yours. It's created by you and for you. So she's yours. So, so I just have to practice trusting you because I can't control it. Minutes would go by. Anxiety would fill back up. And I'd have to say the same thing again. She's yours. Seconds would go by, I'd have to say the same thing again. Sometimes you can't even make, you can't even finish the prayer before the anxiety is already creeping back in, and you just have to start it again. And it's just this pattern, this cycle. It's a constant battle. It feels like a battle. You can't just think about trust. You have to practice trust. Sometimes we wonder if God's even listening. Sometimes we wonder if He is here, if He is present. If he's with us, we have to practice trust in his presence. We have to practice faith in his word, in his presence, that you are his, that he is yours. So whatever it is that you're going through, because you will go through it, whatever it is, you'll go through it. One of the big misnomers of Christianity is once you place your faith in Jesus, prosperity gospel says that you'll get everything you desire. That life will be just great. Well, it will from an eternal perspective, but guess what? You still have to go through suffering just like your Savior. You still have to go through trial. You still have to go through tribulation. You still have to pass through death. So you will have to go through it. The promise of Christianity is not that you won't go through it. The promise of Christianity is you will go through it, but when you go through it, He will be with you. That's the difference. That's the promise. That you'll go through it, but he'll be with you through it. That his presence is with you. And that, friends, is all we need. Maybe you're thinking, no, no, I, I need other things too. Re really, though, what else do you need? Anything else that can be taken in this life? The only thing that matters eternally is just the fact that he's with you. And if he's with you, then it will all work together for your good and for his glory. Look at verse 3. We'll see a second practice. It says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart and who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Selah. Seek God's face. That's the second thing we must do. We must seek God's face. If we want to practice his presence, understand that he is all we need, we must seek 
his face in order to experience his presence. Theologians talk about uh, another way of describing God's presence other than his omnipresence. They also talk about his manifest presence. That's times where God's presence becomes more tangible, where he makes his presence known. Like when he meets Moses at the burning bush or when he speaks from the heavens at the baptism of his son. Or when he speaks from the heavens to Peter, James, and John at Jesus' transfiguration. It's a more intimate, more personal, a movement of God to reveal himself, his manifest presence. And these verses talk about his manifest presence. The hill in verse 3, it's Jerusalem. The holy place is the holy of holies, the place where the ark was kept, where God's presence was kept. And so the question's asked, who shall stand in his holy presence? Whenever we see people come into the presence of God, they either have to cover their face, keep a distance, but if they get close, what could happen? Well, they'd be dead because of his holiness, because of his awe-inspiring majesty. So he rightly asks, who shall stand in this holy place? It's a rhetorical question. Now, the answer to any Jew at that time would have been, well, there's only one day a year, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, where the high priest stands in the presence of the Holy of Holies. Other than that, we don't do it. So that's the answer. One person on one day a year. And yet, what does David say? Whoever who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He totally, totally opens up the paradigm. This is so beautiful. We need to get this and lean in. Now, David is living out the idea of the new covenant, the new promises of God on this side of the cross versus prior to the cross, but he's living out this idea right in the middle of the Old Testament, right in the middle of the Old Covenant. In the New Testament, through faith in Jesus Christ alone, through no one else, nothing else, we are given the gift of relationship with God and the salvation of our souls. And in Christ, we are given the Holy Spirit who dwells in us permanently. In the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, Jesus had not yet come. The Spirit had not been sent to God's people. But there were times when the Spirit would be present in someone's life. And when David was anointed by Samuel the prophet, the Holy Spirit of God, it says, was with him. So David experienced the presence of the Holy Spirit, but it was simply a sign of what was to come because the Spirit would come upon people, but not permanently. In the New Covenant, those who place their faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, and his presence then is with us always. David is alluding to this reality when he doesn't say just the one priest on the one day. He says, whoever has clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to what is false, to some idolatry, and does not swear deceitfully. The point is that when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we are given clean hands through his obedience. We're given a pure heart through faith. We don't lift up our soul to another idol, another God. We lift it up to him alone. We believe that he's the son of God. So we don't swear deceitfully by some other name. We swear only by taking our faith seriously in the work of Christ. And we trust in him alone. So this is the new covenant. That if you trust that you have clean hands, pure heart, if we trust the true teachings of Jesus, and that all of this brings us forgiveness, then you are part of God's blessed people, a blessed generation. And so through the spirit of Jesus, 
you obediently follow the ways of Jesus. You seek to have a clean, uh, you seek to have clean hands. That's the way we live with others. And a pure heart. That's the posture of our heart. You seek not to lift up your soul to what is false, not to swear deceitfully. Now, what's the point of all this? The point is that uh, our level of holiness is directly related to experiencing God's presence. It's not that we're chasing after God's approval. We have his approval in Christ. Uh, We don't lose the Holy Spirit. He's ours forever through faith. But we know in our hearts there's a connection between our obedience and the experience of God's presence. If you completely rebel against God, walk your own way, then you're not going to experience his presence in your life. You are, according to the New Testament, you are hindering the work of the Spirit within you. But if you listen, if we follow his way, and what they say here, if we seek his face, then we will experience his presence. So we seek the face of God. The Hebrew word is bakash, means to seek to search for, to look for, to ask for, to call on, to discover, to pursue, to go after. So we go after the presence of God. Not just some of the time, all of the time. Not just when it's convenient, even in distracted times. This is what we find throughout the Psalms themselves. In Psalm chapter 27, uh, it says this in verse 4, One thing I have asked of the Lord that I seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. You have said, seek my face. So my heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Psalm chapter 40, verse 16. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. Psalm 63, verse 1, O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. The prophet Jeremiah, the prophet Isaiah, they talk about the same words, the same descriptions, the same images. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All of these are commands. Seek God, pursue God, go after God with all of your heart. Maybe you are fearful of seeking after God this kind of way. Maybe you think that if you chase after God with this kind of passion, this type of fervor, then it doesn't that just lead to empty emotionalism? I, I get it. I'm a thinker more than I am a feeler. At least that's what this guy named, what is his name, Myers-Briggs? That's what he told me. I tend to think maybe a little bit more than I feel. Maybe you're the other way, you feel more than you think, but, but are we so afraid of the dangers of extreme expressions of God's manifestations that we don't even look to encounter God's presence? That we don't even look to seek after him? Not just in our mind, but in our emotions, in our bodies, in every part of who we are. See, the things of the Spirit, they're not simply cerebral. Love is not just cerebral, it's meant to be experienced. Joy is not just cerebral, it's meant to be experienced. Peace is not meant to just be cerebral, it's meant to be experienced. So we can go through every practice, every spiritual discipline, every worship gathering, and not actually seek God's face. We can come and learn, we can come and hear, but we can come and be present without actually recognizing the very present, tangible presence of God in our lives through the Spirit himself. 
So we must seek after the face of God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, mind, and strength. The third practice that will help us experience the presence of God is to worship the King of glory. So he says in verse 7, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Literally, the ark is entering through the great gates of the city into the temple itself as they're singing this song. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. The ark is brought into the tabernacle. God's presence has arrived. And God's presence is the most powerful force in the world. I wonder if that's how you feel this morning. Do you recognize that if you are in Christ and you have placed your faith in Him, God's very presence is with you right now? Right now. It's not meant to be some kind of weird thing. It's just the promise of Jesus that through faith He would send His helper and that helper would come and indwell our hearts and remind us of the teachings of our Savior and He would fill us with His fruit as we follow the ways of our Savior. And that means that His presence is with you right now. Do you feel alone? Do you feel like Things are out of control at all in your life in any area or place. Do you feel like you're isolated? Do you feel like you don't have the resources to get through the situation? That you don't have what it takes? That you don't have whatever, whatever things that you might need to actually deal with the situation that you're facing right now? That you don't have what, it, what you need? God is all you need. His presence is all you need. Well, you're saying, well, yeah, but like, of course we need sleep and Food and meals, yes, yes, yes. But you understand what we're saying here. You understand what the scripture is saying. The presence of God is with you and that's all we need. His presence, it says, is strong. It is mighty. It is mighty in battle. So I love this. Lift up your head. Because if you know the king, you share in his victory. So lift up your head because the king of glory is with you. Yes, there's so much we can't control. But we don't have to drop our head. I mean, it's so easy to do that. Just pick up your phone and read the news for an hour. I mean, all of us drop our heads all the time. We drop our heads because of what's happening in our world and our culture and our society around the globe. We drop our heads, but we can lift it up. Why can we lift it up? Because God is with you. His presence is with you. You're not left alone. You're not left without power. You're not left without the fruit of the Spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It's already in you. It's already present. It's just, are we aware of His presence within us? And then He commands us to carry His presence and goodness with us into our neighborhoods and into our networks and into our city and into our nation because it's on our shoulders. That is our mission, that through the work of the Holy Spirit, as we've received Jesus Christ, we then carry the message of Jesus, empowered by his spirit, out of this place into our neighborhoods, taking God's presence with us. That's where God's presence is now, wherever his people go. It's you in your home. It's you 
at your workplace. It's you in your neighborhood. It's you living out the mission and purpose of God through your life for his good purposes and pleasure and also for your good and pleasure. We carry God with us. God's presence is all we need. Is there anything else our need, our world needs more than God's presence right now? I mean, what else do we have to offer, friends? Uh, some Facebook comments? That never works. Like, what, what do we have to offer? The only thing we have to offer is the thing that we've been given because of the work of Jesus. The very presence of God through salvation that will get us through every situation and season until we will come to the end and see our Savior and our Lord the Father face to face. That's all we have to offer. And it's enough. It's our treasure. It's our pride. It's our hope. It's what we have to offer the darkness of the world. Father God, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Father, I just pray for my brothers and sisters who are here this morning um, who came in with situations that they, in their hearts, feel overwhelmed by. Perhaps they feel like they're just completely out of their control. And Father, as we come to this psalm and as we just evaluate the, the situation that we find ourselves in, the culture around us, the world around us, Help us to remember that your presence is all that we need, and through faith, your presence is with us. Even now, Father, I pray that your peace wash over the hearts and souls of those who have been so struggling with whatever it is that they might be going through, the it. Father, that your love, your compassion, your grace and mercy would wash over them. Father, that they would sense, not just cognitively, not just intellectually, but as they seek your face, as they understand that all things are under your control, that the, the world, the universe itself, every hair on our head is under your sovereign control, that they would find rest in you. Father, that we would understand that the King of glory is with us. We don't have to chase after you. You're with us now. You freely offer yourself to us through the work of your Son. Help us to be confident in the Spirit that is working alive within us. Father, I pray for anyone here who does not have relationship with you. They've never submitted their lives to you. And so when they look at the world and they see that it's all out of control, they certainly would think the same, perhaps, Father, of their own soul, their own salvation, wondering if they can control it, if they can manipulate the factors so that you will be pleased and so that they will feel good about their eternal destination and even their life now. And perhaps today they come to that place of laying down their pride and confessing as Jesus commanded us that you give them the courage to even pray now in their minds, Jesus, forgive me. I repent of my sin. I believe in you. That through your life, your death, your resurrection, you made a way so that I would be with the presence of God for the rest of my days. And not just the days here, but the days of eternity. So I receive you. I want to follow you. I want to receive your love, your joy, your peace, your presence in my life. Transform me by your grace. So Father, help us to leave this place empowered 
reminded of what you've done for us, reminded of the great covenantal promises that you've given to us through Jesus on the cross. And Father, that we would carry your name and your presence into every nook and cranny of society that you lead us into. We'll do it all for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's go ahead and stand and respond.